Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from September of 2017 on living in the Anthropocene. To find out about future science cafes, please visit umnh.org. Good evening, everyone. Um, it's so great to see everyone here tonight. My name's Amy Harris. I'm director of the Museum of Natural History, and we're really delighted to host this lecture this evening. And now, I'd like to introduce our speaker, Professor Ben Vanderplein. Not bad. Um, who completed his PhD in Canada on Appalachian geology. He joined the University of Michigan in 1985, and he's now the B.R. Clark Collegiate Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and Professor of the Environment. He's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the Geological Society of America. His research interests include mountain building, earthquake geology, and fluids in Earth's crust, geohazards, sustainability, and societal resi resilience. His campus service has focused on interdisciplinarity and internationalization, among other things. He served on many panels, uh, appeared in many publications. He is the National Science Foundation coordinator for the Science, Engineering, and Education for Sustainability portfolio, and he's the chief editor for Earth's Future Journal, which is about the science of the Anthropocene. He is author or co-author of over 200 articles and lead author of the textbook Earth Structure and the upcoming textbook Earth Interactions. And as we know, by t the title of tonight's talk, he's committed to offering public presentations on the human-Earth nexus. Uh, ben has been a really great friend to the museum over the years, and I looked back on our website to see when he did a science cafe with us, and it, it was 10 years ago, in 2008. So thank you for all your uh, support of the museum over the years, and we're just delighted to have you here tonight to give a talk. Please join me in welcoming Ben Van Ripper. Well, good evening. Thanks, Amy, for that uh, introduction. So, um, as you heard, I have uh, two lives. I'm a geologist, and I work on mountains, obviously, because I work at the University of Michigan. Um, but I also have a life where I work on uh, sustainability and resilience, and that's the stuff that I'm going to talk about tonight. And so, uh, even though I do a lot of geology, this is going to be the focus on thinking a bit more about our world. Um, if you dim, yes, great. If you dim the lights, not too dark. It's not too early yet. Do not too late yet. Um, you probably remember that picture. Everybody, most people in the room are old enough to remember this picture of Planet of the Apes, the original one. Um, but we're going to look basically in this talk about um, patterns of the relationship between humans and the planets. And we're going to try to figure out a bit about impacts that we might have to deal with and that we are dealing with. Um, and, and as we go through this, you'll see that I'm not going to have a litany of how terrible it all is. I actually want to empower you to think about what we can do ourselves once you know how the system actually works and how it plays about. I step back because I'm right staring at the light all the time, so that's why I'm uh, hiding behind the panel. So as we talk about uh, the relationship of humans and the planet, it is really very important to realize how incredibly lucky we are. It is absolutely just perfect for us on this planet. We're not too close to the sun. We're not too far away from the sun, so the radiation is not too bad for us. Uh, we're not too, the planet itself, itself is not too big. It's not too small, so just the right gravity to keep us uh, moving about. Importantly, it is it's not too hot, except in this room. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's also just right. Pretty amazing. Uh, even uh, something as critical as oxygen just happens to be there, not only for us to breathe, but even protect ourselves. And so somehow we made an incredibly clever choice to come here. Um, and so that's the first thing to take away. But of course, as you know very well, we didn't find this place. This place found us. And we adjusted to this world around us. So it's the perfect place. We have to keep in mind that we are fully tuned to the conditions of the place today and where we live it in today for our future. As we change those conditions of the world around us, then we have to keep in mind to what extent that will affect us. And so we often call this the Goldilocks planet because it is just right. 
And if NASA is looking for life in other places, the same argument is it has to be the very narrow window for, for a species, for, for evolution, or for a particular, for complicated life to exist. And remember that we are adjusting, of course, to what the planet offered along the way. And so as we change that environment, we have to keep in mind that we may not be able to adjust as readily as we think we are in many a way. Now, it didn't happen overnight, this planet you saw on the video clip, the minute video clip. Uh, it took a while. It's a picture that you see in many ways. And, of course, there's no better way than to give this talk in the museum as I walked back and I looked at these, this place that I've seen many a time over my years here. Um, we had a long time, of course. We started four and a half billion years ago. Uh, had a slow start when it came to species, but eventually that started to ramp up and life became more complicated. We eventually got out of the ocean when the protection of the atmosphere took place of that. Life got more complicated. And as time went by, it actually evolution got so much that it ended up of us sitting right here, sort of the pinnacle of that evolution. You could argue that's the case or not. But certainly we are at that sort of, for now, at the end of that cycle. We're not the end of the cycle, but we are at the end of that cycle so far because the future now is before us. And you see this person sitting here. It's hard to see where you are probably, but staring at the future or something to say staring at the abyss before them. Um, this is what we have to think about. It's going to play out before us. And what I'm going to talk to you a bit about is the fact that we are such drivers. There's so much change taking place that geologists even are talking about the concept that maybe we should think about geologic wind steps in time as one where we are really at a threshold where things are very different from what they were before. So that's what that term Anthropocene comes from, from Anthropo, from humans, to point out humans are a very large player and a very large driver of the planet as we look at it today. And that's where this idea is. And living in the Anthropocene is how do we live with the place that we ourselves are changing and are affecting in, in, many, particular, in many particular ways. I'm not going to go through uh, details of the early history of, of, uh, of, of humans. I'm going to jump right in to the window where it becomes really clear that this is a time of major change. In other words, this is the time where the Anthropocene, Anthropocene kicked in. Basically, to figure out where humans started to significantly alter the, the, the world that, that we live in. And a very nice way to present that, that's been done over the years, is by emphasizing the fact that it looks like things were going along just at a, at a sort of a pace, but then not that long ago, essentially around maybe 1900 or so, maybe just before that, Things picked up dramatically, but a lot of things picked up. So this is one diagram. There's a lot of data on this diagram. And the diagram is not a really great diagram. The vertical axis is not scaled. It's a relative axis. All the, uh, all the graphs have about the same feeling. But the point is, when you start from this end, these are numbers for 1750s. And you go to this end right over here, these are numbers for the 2000s. And all these lines are different types of, of, of phenomena, of, of features that characterize the uh, change as it took place. Uh, an obvious one, I made it the largest one, human population went forward steadily until sort of around 1900. It started to explode up. And of course, it's slowing down now in growth, but still growing quite considerably. But the impact of this diagram is so important because it emphasizes that a multitude of things were rapidly changing. It's captured by this idea that was advanced by Will Steffen called the, the Great Acceleration. Everything went suddenly happened. That's when we talk about the Anthropocene. That's where we think about we are really changing a lot of things. It's about the use of water. It's our use of getting food, fisheries in this case. It's changing the atmosphere. We'll touch on some of these things as it goes by. And so really what is the driver of this uh, this acceleration that we try to argue, of course, is the fact that there are more people. There are ever more people. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about is the trends of human population because ultimately it all comes down to understanding how many people are there, what do we do with all these people, how can we feed them all, but also how do they affect the world, and if you have more people, is that going to be sustainable or not as we go forward. But this is a very compelling way, I think, to emphasize that things didn't change all that much for a long, long time, even in... In, uh, in, in, in human history, and suddenly, around the turn of the century, or a bit before that, things started to radically change in the world where we are right now, and many of these diagrams continue on in the same pattern the last decade or so. It, it doesn't really matter at, at the, uh, the upper end as we go about. So, let's first have a look at population, because there's a bunch of things that are really powerful to know and to have a, to have a grip on as we start to think about what the future might look like. That's what we're trying to do. The obvious one is, of course, the raw numbers of population. So all my graphs 
have text on them, and that may make them a little busy, but I do that to make sure that I don't forget what I'm supposed to say. Uh, but also, for those of you who think, what the hell is he saying, uh, there's something there. Do not worry. I'm not going to read my own slides. Uh, in, uh, it, it would be very boring. I'll just give you some numbers to, to mill over as we talk about this. So this diagram of population is shown on the right here. And the point I want to make is, of course, there is already a big change taking place since the time I was a kid. Um, is that when I was a kid, I was taught population is going like never before, will go on and on, and we should be about 12 billion people today. Well, we are here today. We have 7.4 billion people. Something already is changing in the future. One of the things that we immediately have learned that human population growth is already slowing down. It's not reducing the total population, but the rate of growth is slowing down. Uh, when I was a kid, it was a 2% rate of increase, which meant it would double every 35 years, hence that number of about 12 billion, because there were about uh, 6 billion in the 5.5 billion at the time. But today, bless you, today we are at 1.2% or so, so it will take something like 60 years if it would go at a rate like that, which it won't, to double the population, we're probably not going to see any of that as time goes by. If we actually look at the increases, how they change with time, and how much they slow down, we can make a pretty good prediction that what we have to deal with in about 35 years or so is about 9.5 billion people on our planet. Um, that's a pretty good estimate because basically we can, 35 years out is not that terribly difficult to go. The end of the century, a little trickier, will still probably have increases, and this is just the trends of population. It does not have anything in there which is dramatic uh, disruptions, but you would expect on the order of 11 billion. So the numbers we have to think about is that we are dealing with an increase that we have today, but an increase that is not at the rate it was before. So it's just some raw numbers. That is not the whole picture, of course. So what is particularly important to realize is, as we're dealing with this population, is how the world is changing when it comes to these numbers on a regional scale. And the upper left diagram are a very weird way of looking at the Earth. Those are diagrams where about a proportion of people are shown by the size of the country that they live in. What that means is you have proportionally more people, your country seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Rest assured, that's not happening in real life. It's a representation. But it drives a point home very clearly as we near at the end of the cycle and start all over again, is where we were as we started in the, in the 1950s, I must admit, about the time that I was born. Uh, India and China, of course, a lot of people. Uh, Africa, it's okay. Europe is still pretty relatively populated. But as this roll, clock rolls forward, the numbers are at the top over there, 2020, 2025. You see some countries inflating uh, considerably India, but also places like Nigeria. You see the U.S. is steady. You see Mexico is growing. So looking at raw numbers is not enough. You have to see where the growth is. And that is one of the big challenges when you look at population dynamics. The point is the Western world is seeing relatively little increase so far and also for the future as planned. All the population growth that we're seeing on our planet is in what we call the developing nations nearly all the growth is there. So if there's challenges in these areas, which we'll look at, we'll also see it's a double challenge because that's where the population growth really takes place. The Western world hasn't really grown very much, except by immigration in some countries and not in others, as you go about. Um, but staggeringly, a place like Nigeria, which you probably know about, heard about, but it will be one of the biggest countries in the world uh, later part in this, uh, in, this, in this century. It's quite staggering. So you have to start to regionalize it. All these issues are not all global issues. They are very regional issues. So you cannot treat everything as a global issue. There's the second trend in population. There's a third trend in population that is also very important before we start to think a bit about how we feed all these mouths as it goes about. And that's the fact that not only are, is the growth disproportionate regional in country-wise, it is also particularly disproportionate in that nearly all the growth takes place in urban areas. This trend of urbanization, right? About 10 years ago or so, 50% of the world's population lived in urban areas. It will be about 60% in a, in a, within a decade from now. The entire population of the world, more than half, are living in urban areas. And that's for the entire world. In the Western world, we're already at 80%. And so you have this concept of that you have to start to think not just about countries, but about cities being so large that they are the size of countries, megacities. 
as a kid, I, I learned, I wasn't here then, but I learned about this great big city in New York, more than 10 million people. Wow, it was a big deal. Now there's 25 plus cities like that around the world of these mega cities. This idea of mega cities is the other step in this scenario. That could be a problem, but actually concentrating people might ultimately make a solution to some of the questions before us. It's easier to deal with populations that are concentrated than spread out for a number of reasons. Maybe some of them you'll touch on as we, as we go by. But it's clearly a trend that's not slowing down. We're seeing that more and more that this urbanization pattern takes up. But I think it will ultimately help us a bit with solutions of the challenges before us as well, because concentrations of people allow you to have, get more efficiently uh, things done. So these big blobs are just these big cities, the mega cities around the world. Some are actually undercounted because they don't count. Um, uh, homeless people like Sao Paulo is actually gigantic, is more than 25 million people, but it's counted as 20 plus million. Um, but that's the third trend. So the numbers are increasing, but not as much anymore. We're seeing the increase nearly entirely in the developed nation, developing nations. And secondly, we're seeing that all the people are drawn to urban areas. That's also where most of the population growth takes place. So, so that is the background as you start to think about the challenges that we have to live in the years to come with a population of 9.5 and 11 billion people. All right? So it's just the numbers, just playing numbers forward. Why does this matter? Well, the reality is, of course, you have to feed these people. You have to actually get food. Um, and that's the first issue that we have to think a bit about. Uh, there's a minimum level of food that you need. Otherwise, you simply just don't survive. After a while, you just, it's, not, it's not very good for you. Um, that is actually a much smaller number than you and I have on a daily basis. You can sustain in a much lower amount of calories a day than the sort of the 2,500 to 3,000 that we use on average in, in the U.S. That already gives you a bit of a flavor of the inequality that we have in this game. But you certainly need 1,000-plus calories or so to, be, uh, to, be, uh, um, um, uh, to actually be healthy enough to keep going forward. If you just look at the raw production of calories that we have on our planet, there is no shortage of food for the entire population on our planet, even if it grows to 9 billion people. That doesn't mean there's no starvation, as we'll see in a little bit, but if you just look at the raw numbers or what you need to actually have a, a healthy life, there is enough food to feed the entire world. It's unevenly distributed, but that's a different story. We'll get to that when you make your own decisions as we go forward. So that's good news. It, it, it actually makes it all the more frustrating that there is places where there's starvation and people are hungry. It, ma it makes it only more disturbing you think about that. Now, water is a different story. We are enormous consumers of water. As, as, as you know, you can do without food for quite a bit. A couple of weeks without food, it's not great, but you get over that. You can't do more than three days without water. You have to have fresh water. And so fresh water might be the limiting factor in, in, in most places. And not so much just the fresh water to drink, but the fact is that we have a modern structure whereby water is consumed in very large amounts to create the products that we, that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. Even petroleum, filling up the gas tank of your car, is primarily a water business. They just happen to get oil, oil out of the ground, but they spend much more on water than, actually, than, uh, than the oil comparatively does that way. So water will be something I'll touch on that, that's just going to be a challenge because it has more difficulty to move around. The reality is, if you live like you and I do in, in our world, uh, if you look at kids for in the U.S., the, a young person in the U.S., I, I do kids because I, I teach students and they are about in their 20s. Uh, one of them is here, Ari. <laughs> but uh, sort of I, I sort of, instead of talking about 50 and 60-year-olds, I said, well, what do the average population and the 20-year-old sort of does? 15 to 20 times is what you consume in the U.S. compared to a same age kid in developing uh, countries. That's a very significant difference. Um, whether it's good or bad is not what I'm talking about. This is not a philosophy of what's good or what's bad. It's simply the reality of looking at the fact that we have a lot, we consume a lot. Um, that may be a, a thing to address as, as, as we start to, to go and start to look, uh, start to look forward. Um, of course, this consumption comes at a price for the planet. Right? The planet is delivering all these goods that we need. We are, I, I um, sometimes um, um, want to forget to emphasize that when I talk about getting water and getting food, we're asking the planet to help us deliver those goods, right? And so the depletion of the ecosystem is certainly uh, going to play a major role as we go forward, as we, if we don't make better plans and how to do that. The depletion might be the habitats, but simply even just tiring out our soils and, and, and draining our, uh, our, um, our water resources as we go about. So the question that is often asked then is, 
is there a limit to these people? Well, I've told you, the 9.5 billion, based on raw numbers, based on looking at patterns, that's probably just fine. Um, 11 billion, some people have done it, said it's probably okay, but it's starting to push it a lot. And that assumes you can get to these people, of course, right? But there is no reason to think that in the next near decades, population growth keeps growing, that there should be any reason why we don't have enough food or enough water for humans. And of course, that is only looking at us, right? It's seeing how our world is. We're looking at ourselves only. It's, it's about the human, the human era. But this is sort of sobering numbers to think a bit about as you go forward. The horrible thing starts when you look at features like the fact there is hunger in this world. And I just said that you can do this calculation and you'll find out there is enough caloric production to feed the entire world. How come 800 million people are hungry on this planet, right? 800 million, 250 million children are hungry on this planet. And that is entirely a political construct. Um, there's really no need, no reason to have hunger this way around the world because you can transport food quite well and we have enough food. So, so it's the first example where we realize we're not just doing a number game, we're walking around this planet, we take what we need, we also sometimes limit that access, and that's just what are the driver for the hunger around the world, that it's used as a political tool that simply limits access, it, it, just, it, it minimizes supplies for uh, ways that uh, are hard to comprehend but are happening around um, in many ways. And this is the food part, right? We're talking about food, just uh, like, like things you can transport around, uh, not the water yet. It's one of the sadder parts of if, as a human living on this planet, and it might get sadder. So with water, it's trickier, because again, there is enough fresh water, but water is not so transportable. It's not so easy to transport water. And so what we're seeing, this picture at the bottom here, is the same type of diagram I showed before. Again, it looks like a really distorted, which it is, but it shows the proportion of the availability of water resources as a function of countries around the world. And you see how nicely bloated South America is because there's a lot of fresh water in South America. You see, unfortunately, how uh, shrunken Africa is because there's not a lot of fresh water access in, in, um, in, uh, in, in, in Africa. But you also remember that the population growth in particular was going to take place in developing nations. So what we're seeing is that places where we see significant water stresses are also the places where we see the largest population growth, only amplifying those water stresses. The access to water is going to be a major limiting factor. And even though there's a good amount of water in China and India, there is really not that obvious to see that more than 2.5 billion people have enough water if you develop those nations in the same way that we're consuming water. Right? We use ourselves as the measure as, as of, of the, the use of these various uh, ways to go about. So it's not unlikely that the future... Um, strive in the world will, like it always has been about resources, will be about water. Most wars were fought, most I should say, um, were fought about resources, and the future ones will likely be the resource being primarily water, because that's going to be a limiting thing, because we have all these people that need, to, that need water. And it's hard to transport it around. It's simply not as easy to, uh, since we consume so much of it, like a cubic meter is what you consume in a year, that's a lot of water to move around to people that don't have access to water. So that's the first one to keep in mind as a bit of a roadblock as we look forward. All right? And by the way, living in Michigan, I would say it's pretty good. It's the, sort of the Middle East when it comes to water. We have so much water, so much access to water. We basically uh, should uh, be a little, bit, uh, uh, a little bit happier with all this, uh, this fresh water around us and the access that we have. Um, and, and, a, and in fact, a gallon of gas is cheaper than a gallon of water if you go to the store, which is also mind-boggling as you go about it. So that was the, the, the second leg of the interaction of humans with our planet. What else is a major player? Probably the biggest player that you hear a lot about, and that's energy, our energy future. Again, the diagram is data because I want to show you that much of what I'm saying is rooted in, in relatively simple calculations, but is rooted in information that tries to project things forward based on information, not based on, on sentiment or, or, or goodwill. Um, our energy future, of course, simply means how much more energy do we need to keep our society going? 
Well, since the U.S. is not really growing very much in population, neither is Western Europe, neither is Oceania, neither is Japan, you can already predict that the energy consumption that will be taking place will not be a lot larger than it is today. In fact, it might even shrink, and the U.S. has seen a small reduction in its energy consumption. But over, overall, the Western world, developed world, is not increasing that much more in its energy need. And this diagram from where you sit, don't worry about the numbers, but it starts at 1990, it projects it to 2035. The dark blue, as you can see that, is slightly moving up, but that's the consumption of the, de of the developed nations. We're major consumers, by the way. So less than a billion people consume more than the other six and a half billion people. But the, the change is that with time, the developing nations, to develop, will need more access to energy, will actually start to consume more energy, and the growth will be just like in population, because population is driving that in addition to the affluence of society, will all be in the developing nations. They will need more energy. They will have, need to have access to more energy to evolve not only to a higher quality of standard of living, but also to feed more mouths and to basically accommodate the fact that all the population growth is taking place there. All right? So now what's the challenge here? Is, is not that we are running out of energy, but we're running out of environment. Because energy is in many ways available to us, but as you'll see a little bit later on, of course, we make choices that may not always benefit the world around us. The likely projections are that if you look at where is the, the developing nation going to get its energy from, it is not going to be an electrified system. It's, it's, it's great to have solar panels, it's great to have wind power, it's great to have alternative energy sources, but for the next, certainly the next 25 or so years, most of the growth of energy in the developing nation will come from the use of, of the big three, the unfortunate big three, oil, gas, and coal. That because it's there, the infrastructure is made for it, it's, it's readily transportable, that's the reason why it's so powerful as a resource. The bottom line is the growth that we'll see in the consumption of energy will simply mean that the growth in the fossil fuels will be taking place as we go forward. And yes, we're electrifying our systems, and yes, many countries are making great leaps forward, but we're not talking about the few outlier countries, not even the Western world by itself, which is only a fraction of the total population. It's these other nations that cannot afford to go the route that we do and, and put very expensive solar panels and the like uh, as, as we are. And so um, the growth of the use of fossil fuels is on the order of 2%. That means that today's consumption uh, will be double that 35 years from now, about 35 years from now. So by the year 2050, we'll need twice the amount of fossil fuels if we're going to go the route that we have been going. And that, that, that has not changed all that much. That's a huge amount to actually think about. Fossil fuels will still be 80% of the production of energy for the world in the near future. Why you raise that is not because we don't have enough fossil fuels. In fact, there is quite a little bit of fossil fuel. The scarcity of fossil fuel is really a, a technological limit, but there is a lot of fossil fuel. Sometimes you wish we had less. The consequence of having this large growth, of course, is that the byproduct of fossil fuels is really what we have to deal with, and that's the elephant in the room. And of course, there's a, uh, a mastodon right be behind me, so let's say it's the, the, the mastodon in, in, in the room. Um, it's, of course, the byproduct which leads to the fact that we know that if you insert uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, you are changing our climate. Uh, the, really, there's no need to have a long debate. I'm sure that if somebody wants a question, I'll answer it, why we are so sure, sure about that. But don't trust me. You can figure it out. The reason why our planet is so comfortable to begin with is because we have greenhouse gases. You simply put more of it, it gets a little bit more war a little warmer. If there would be no greenhouse gases, be a frozen planet. So we know that greenhouse gases are playing the role of tweaking the thermostat of our planet. We also know that if you burn fossil fuels, we're changing something in the system. When you and I breathe out CO2, that ultimately gets consumed again until we eat it as food again, and we're in a closed-loop cycle. We burn fossil fuels that was never part of that system. It was always buried away. We release it in the atmosphere. We are adding raw greenhouse gases that are not being consumed at the same rate as being produced. As a consequence, we're turning up the thermostat. I always use the thermostat as an example. Again, it's a warm room here. But we're turning up the thermostat. We already have turned up the thermostat. 
Meaning, you went to the room, you, and by the way, this turning is, I, I remember that I always do that, and students always ask, what the hell are you doing with your hands? All of us grew up with turning thermostats probably, right? And so of course now you do this, but it doesn't look as dramatic. Um, but we already turned up the thermostat. The room hasn't, he has not gotten the heat yet. It will take a while for the room to heat up, just like in your home when you turn up the heat. It takes a little bit for it to reach that heat. But we know that this is taking place. So this concern about climate warming is really something that is playing out today to some extent, but will play out very much more in the future. And with a story and a scenario of growth in fossil fuels, we will see that that will be a stronger and stronger imprint. It just takes a little while for it to kick in. The heating of fossil fuel release of, of, of greenhouse gases will take a little while to get its full course. There's a lag time there, but we're in this system. And you've seen many a form of this diagram. Um, I like it because it's red and blue, because it's non-political. Um, and so... Uh, it, it just shows you that as we go from, this is 1880 till about 2015, I think is when I did this one, yeah. Uh, you see that relatively an average in that window, and you could decide where you want to take the average, but you see that clearly in the latter part we are, are starting to feel that difference in average temperature. This is average, and this is global temperature, right? This is not local, because that's a whole different story, which we can get to. So that's, of course, the big, uh, the big elephant in the room, and that's not going to change if we are actually going to move about and, and, and talk a bit about uh, uh, the future consumption of, of, of energy. Just a picture of uh, projections for an uh, uh, image of warming, where it is, and how regionalized it is. I told you that, that I sort of glanced over this. I said, we know that greenhouse gases work this way with this thermostat of the atmosphere. We can see some of these effects slowly. Um, one of the very good ways to look at the effects, of course, is uh, some visible evidence like um, uh, retreating glaciers. That's usually used as a very good uh, argument. And certainly that is taking place all over the world. You can do the plots, and that's what this the snow cover in the hemisphere. Um, Maybe the other way to look at it is that we're also seeing a persistent, and that may be the better way to have evidence, a persistent sea level rise around the world. Not much yet, but it's very persistent as we look at, uh, at the diagrams. And remember, the scales, of course, hide the story. The, the scale here is in millimeters, and so it looks dramatic. It's only a, a couple hundred millimeters, but that starts to make a difference for, uh, for these systems. Um, I'm often asked why the Dutch are so tall. I always say they're anticipating sea level rise because that's sort of what you've got to keep an eye on, right? Um, and so we have a few of these indicators. This is no doubt that they are, and, and as I said, um, uh, we know the drivers that we have to deal with, uh, which are primarily how we change the atmospheric system as, as we go forward. So this is not a debate about climate change, except it, it, it's, it's happening. What I want to talk about is just like the food and the water part is what that has an impact on us, right? I told you about numbers of people. I just want to mention that, that, that there's a whole range of impacts, and I'm not going to give a climate change talk. There's other people in this room that could do it much better than I can to begin with. But there's no doubt that you shouldn't just think about temperature increases the only issue. Uh, temperature increase is certainly an issue. It's amplified in the megacities. That's why I brought out the megacities. So if you have temperature increase, cities will see much more of that impact than the, than the countryside. Uh, what will have an effect is sea level, and sea level, as I said, so not that much, but most of us live and uh, certainly rely on access that we have to the sea. We basically build our cities near the sea because we're easy for transport. I'm not talking about hotels and stuff like that because it's vacation. But we build our cities because it's easy for transport and near fisheries around the world. And so that's going to be where a significant impact is. That might be the greatest impact in the short term of, uh, of, of climate warming. Weather changes will take place. Um, maybe somebody will ask, I hope not, the hurricanes, recent hurricanes related to, to climate change. Well, that's not going to be an easy answer on that one. The point is we know down the road, though, weather patterns will change very significantly. We have impacts on agriculture, forest, water resources. This is a big issue. We have a pretty good sense of how these things move forward. We even have a good idea that it has changes when it comes to, uh, to uh, the, uh, uh, the, the health, of, uh, the health of, of human society. But I do not want to go into these topics. A lot of people do. It's very important and very useful. I just want to just step back and, and, and play a simple number game again, a simple equation game, to sort of make you realize why we need to worry about all these little pieces. Not specifically why you need to think about sea level rise, but how is impact actually equated to human society. And that's what I'm going to do in the next few slides. I'm going to 
try to show you something that uh, I find quite a compelling way. And so how is this impacting us? And there's a relatively straightforward relationship that we have to understand what impacts are for human society. And remember, I'm talking about us, how things are impacting us, humans, the human society. And the way that we are describing impacts is this, this relationship that I show there. It's a very simple equation. It simply says it's a function of population. It's a function of how developed that population is or how much stuff we have, affluenza, so how much we, we, we have as a society. And it's a function of the technology of societies. And the technology is something I'll touch on in a second. But that relationship gives you a flavor of, of what you should expect if you worry about impacts. If you want to know, are things going to change for me? Well, try to see the fill in the equations. All right? What we want to worry about is how can we deal with impacts? That's a whole different story. We have to worry about it in the sense of absorb them. We have to recover it. That's called resilience. How are societies going to handle that? That's a story by itself. But we can figure out whether or not impact will be greater or less as a function of this relationship that we deal with. If we do that, we have an equation where we have two knowns. Uh, the two knowns are population is growing. So that part of the equation goes up. So the impact on society will be bigger because we just have more people. We're also living in a part of the world where, in, in the world whereby we increasingly industrialize and modernize our countries. And so as a consequence, our affluence status, our level of affluenza or our, the stuff we have is going up. And so the impact factors from just those two will go up. You'll see impacts greater and greater. An incident that happened 50 years ago, the same incident happening today will have a much greater impact because there's more people and they have more. So there's more to lose as you go about but there is a lever, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit with the lever there. There's a lever here, that's the red arrow. That's technology. The lever, of course, the way I described it, is not working to our advantage. Technology, for example, is how we get energy, right? Energy is a way for us to power our society, but energy had an imp impact because what it did, it changed the atmosphere, and so the more we consume energy, the more the impact is, and the arrow goes up. We have very little choice if you want to lower the impact, if you look at that equation, because other than removing population, which is not an option, or not allowing other nations to evolve at a, to a level that we are at least used to, that we anticipate, that's not fair either. That's not right either. So maybe there's a lever that actually technology can go as the other way. And in this talk, I didn't want to just give you the bad news, because there's so many, scientists always give us bad news about how it's not going to work out. And I'm going to challenge you a little bit with something that's highly controversial. Let's begin with this. So you know that we all realize that this lever of technology, when it comes to energy, for example, is pushing us to a, to a condition whereby we worry about what the atmosphere temperature will be like in, in the near future. The Paris Accord, ratified in 2016, was an agreement among a lot of countries where they ultimately said we should try to keep temperature increase below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And then they said, if not, let's try to keep it below 2 degrees Celsius. That was the Paris Accord. It's just a bunch of folks sitting in a room like this, basically saying, let's try to do this. And let's try to do this in a way that we all agree this is a good thing to do. Well, the one thing people are usually not good at is to do it just because it's the right thing to do, but we'll see how it plays out. Reality, the one and a half degree, it doesn't look like that's ever going to be a, a goal that's reasonable. We're probably going to exceed that sooner than later. Is two degrees a goal that we can limit ourselves to? Maybe. It doesn't look like it if the transition to energy does not take place. If you don't change the energy system, we will easily reach two degrees as well. And so, to give you the other way to look at it, I say, we're going to have to live with two degrees Celsius increase. That's going to be the future of our children, a planet that's two degrees warmer on average, which means highly localized, some places much warmer than other places. So this Paris Accord, it's great, it's voluntary. I'm sure everybody was in a positive spirit, but it's not going anywhere in the sense of there's no requirements to meet those things. So what about another lever? And I just want to leave you with something that you don't hear much about, but it's in part because it's kind of controversial and crazy. If we can increase the greenhouse gases, can we not actually address that issue in other, in other ways? 
can we not actually say, if we're so smart, maybe we should actually try to fix the problem in other ways. Yes, we could have fewer greenhouse gas emissions, but the Earth is already warming up. Can we not actually take some, a complete new approach and say, listen, how can we maybe address this issue from a different way that doesn't describe changing the infrastructure, which we're not going to do as much, but that it changes the impacts of the infrastructure. The lever would go down, in other words, and not up. So this idea of, of geoengineering, which is not at all popular, is trying to say, listen, we could actually do a couple of things. Simplest thing of it all is, could we turn down the sun a little bit? Could we dial the sun back? Well, that's not going to happen on the sun, but we could certainly dial back the radiation of the sun reaching us. So some idea is actually to say, well, we manage solar radiation. What I often call is, we're going to treat the symptoms. The reason why the temperature increase at the surface is taking place is the atmosphere is a little warmer. But if you have less sunlight coming in, we offset that. So solar radiation management is one way to go. How you do that, we won't have time to get there. But there are ideas out there to go about. Better yet, if you can put CO2 in, why don't we take it out, right? The technology is there. That's a lot more expensive, a lot more complicated, because you're pulling out atom molecule by molecule. But you could also say, if you put it in, can we not take it out? If we take it out, we're not just treating the symptoms, we're actually treating the patient. The, the illness is actually being taken care of. So we can, as opposed to, say, a voluntary greenhouse gas emission, we could decide to pull out the CO2. And I say that is because we are humans. We're not passive players in this game. We can make decisions to optimize the world around us. If we really worry about this thing, which we should, then maybe we should think about remedies in this process, not just remedies that are well-intentioned, like the Paris Accord, but remedies that might be hands-on. But of course, everything comes with a price, and that's why this is a very unpopular topic, because the price might be too big. You could weaponize this. You could say, well, we're going to put, uh, we're going to limit the solar radiation over some areas so they have lower crops, and we basically have starvation in those areas, and sort of as a punishment. Yes, humans have weaponized pretty much everything. Still, we could think about addressing this by these systems whereby instead of assuming we do something which we haven't done so far to say we can actually make that change. Sadly enough, as an anecdote, so I mean, you shouldn't spend the time on that, but I was in the movies, I like to watch movies, and there's a movie coming out called Geostorm. Write it down. Geostorm, of all the bad luck that I have, Geostorm is a movie about geoengineering, but there's a bad guy at the knob. So it's going to be somebody trying to use it as a weapon against the planet. So I think this whole idea of geoengineering, as it ramped up, one Hollywood movie will tell us that, oh my gosh, yes, this is very dangerous. And um, um, so don't go and see the movie. Uh, I will, of course, and I will just uh, evaluate it for what it's worth. It's Hollywood, so it can't be true. Um, but the point is, yeah, there's dangers there. But we have done all these things along the way. We have used our heads. So one way for us to actually make progress is to simply say, the solutions are, yeah, we can adapt, we can do everything, but you know, we've been really smart along the way. When we needed protection, we figured out fire. When we needed to have agricultural systems, we started to use animals. When it wasn't enough, we built equipment that actually was generating, uh, help us generate food and process food. When we wanted to get around, we built vehicles, airplanes. We are very smart if, we, if the question is before us. We can handle that question and we'll find a solution. There's always a prize with a solution. But maybe the prize is not as big as we usually think. We have done a lot of things along the way, right? There's a prize with transportation, but there's also a value in transportation because the only way to feed these hungry people in the rest of the world is through transportation, right? You're not going to grow suddenly the entire Sahara. And so if we want to get solutions, we should just use our heads. It should not just be emotions or sort of shallow commentaries about politicians who say, let's do it that's one way or the other. The other way to think about it is that maybe our expectations of, of what we do is just too large. Maybe our, our degree of, of appropriations of resources is just too large. Maybe we should just tone that down a little bit. Use that food analogy because it sort of makes us feel better. If you're hungry, sort of food always does a good job. But reduce the numbers of people or, which is more likely, basically the expectations of all these people. That's a big change. Meaning, we decide to take less of what we take today so that we can share it, share it with others. But the bottom line is essentially you have less consumers. That would be the way, one, one way to go forward. I think the other way that we have to take responsibility for is we're just very rude, right? The Western world is just very rude. We just took what we wanted. We just have showed no manners, showed very poor manners.
We really did not talk about what we sometimes call environmental equity, trying to sort of realize that everybody should have access to part of a piece of the pie. And maybe that's part of this discussion that we should realize that we have to look at our, what we take, our consumption, and actually make decisions based on the fact that we should probably give up some, some things along the way. We should show some manners, just like we tell our kids, they have manners at the table. We should have manners at the table of global politics in the same way. The Western world I'm talking about. So, so there are solutions there. They're, they're not, it's not all a hopeless situation. When you hear about, oh my gosh, going to go just all downhill. It's always been going downhill if you ask people that are a little older. Uh, and uh, I, it, it's not necessary at all. We're very smart. We're very creative. Nothing much happens. And why did nothing happen is the last thing that I'll do. Why? Why is any action we've done so difficult? Why don't we move forward in this? You, we know you know a lot. Certainly this audience is undoubtedly well-educated. Um, it's inherent in us that we don't react well to slow change. When something terrible happens, where there's a hurricane or an earthquake, everybody comes out and rallies and helps each other and, and solves that. That's, that's fantastic. That's a human trait that we have. We, we, we come when we're needed. What we're not good is we know that something is coming to say, let's already assume this is happening. It's just our human nature. We wait till it happens, and then we go in overdrive. That's just a problem, and that's part of why we, we don't really have the progress that, that we do. That's one of the ways. The other thing why we don't make changes, we don't like to make large changes. It's just not. We have what we have. We're comfortable with that. And we don't really look forward giving that up because we like what we have. And I'm not just talking about a, a nicer car, but just basically the world that, that, that we live in. And even if you want to make all these changes, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be very costly to change systems around the world that they actually they would not have the impact that the Western world has had on, on, on the world. But it can all be done. It's just simply... We are slow in, in motion because these are characteristics that we have, that, that we deal with, that we have to, have to worry about. What do we need to do? Well, change those things or um, rely on the fact that we're very smart. People are not passive players. We're not going to live in a world where the water stands up here and every day long we slush through the water to our work and slush back from, to, our, to our home in the water. We'll find ways. There's entire countries that are built below sea level for hundreds of years and they're doing just fine. So, so remember that if we invest in new ideas, we will probably will undoubtedly be able to address many of these, these features. We need to change the economics of the system as well, of course. Right now, it's not conducive to change because the economics doesn't promote that. You want to change the economic system as it goes about. But really, what may be the largest change is that we should individualize this. Everything that I talked about, and that's the big weak spot of any of these conversations, is the world, global population, the politicians. Individuals were probably the best position to make those choices and to make those changes. And so what we need to do is you need to realize what our personal values are, where we want to put priorities, understanding that we have to shift those values. And that is important because if we change our value system, society leaders, politicians are, I guess, society leaders, they will follow us. It's not that we follow them, obviously, right? They will follow us. So the individualized choices, you never have an excuse to say, I should not make a choice. Basically, this is not a global problem. These are not even national problems. These are personal problems. Once you do this as a personal problem, you will make choices. You will make changes. That will drive this, this path forward. And a very good way to end, this is what the last thing I'll do, is actually to emphasize that idea, and it's sometimes called the power of one. You as an individual, not you as a group, me as a person, you as a person, should start to make choices that then actually start to ripple forward in the rest of the community around you, and that will be giving change. We have, in all fairness, passed the buck, right? We said, our leaders are not telling us to go for alternative energy. Well, maybe you should, right? Maybe we should have a smaller house. Maybe you should have fewer cars. Well, and the answers are yes to all of these things. The question is, is that value of your life going to be less? Well, if you measure the value of your life by the size of your house, you have problems, by the way. But if you measure the value of your life by the number of cars, well, maybe you should change the value. Maybe your value is the smallest possible car I could have. Now, that's what I'm proud of. All right? 
So, so making these topics global, even regional, allows us to not make any decisions because it's not about us. But if it's your neighbor who's in trouble, you run out to help. And the same thing will work in the other way around. You will, when you make a change, it will start to ripple through the system. Because if you do so, there's really no doubt that our future will just be a thriving future. There's no reason to be so down on ourselves if we decide to use our brains and to move forward in this way by you taking responsibility. Thanks, and I'll answer questions now. And the light will go on. Yeah, so the, I'm repeating the question because they asked me to do that. So the question is about, so Americans seem to want a carbon tax, uh, yet nothing is happening. Um, obviously, I can't comment on the statistic. I, I must honestly say I've rarely heard in America people want a tax. And so, so I, I think it, it's the New York Times. But, but I think the, the point, however, is on a general scale, absolutely, this is going to cost money. But it's costing money down the road anyhow. And so the question is, 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 is a carbon tax culture one way to solve this issue of like, well, we need to remedy the situation? Um, yeah, somebody has to pay for that. I'm not sure that people know what a carbon tax is because nobody knows exactly what a carbon tax is, meaning it's different for everybody has a different discussion. But there is a price to pay that you don't have for other things if we're going to take responsibility for the changes that we do. If you... For example, in indirect carbon taxes, you buy your tomatoes because they come from Mexico or you buy them from Dexter. You made a carbon tax decision because there's much less transportation in there, but you don't really know because they're cheaper coming from Mexico than they are buying them from Dexter. That's because nobody calculated the expense of the carbon in between that was consumed to get them there. And so it's, the problem is with the argument of the carbon taxes, it is not a thing that you say, well, this is going to be better for me. No, it's going to cost us. This is where your value system kicks in. So you're paying for it because you think it's what you need to do. 80% sounds like an awfully large number of people, but it is always to drive the point home. It's an economic system that we have. I mean, oil is way too cheap. I mean, it's ridiculously cheap. I mean, why it's so cheap? Because all we pay for is to get out of the ground. We don't pay for all the other things that go with it, including the entire military. You start to pay the bills. That's just what this will come down to. So your values will shift. Your expenses will shift. So I, I, I can't comment on the 80%, but it's certainly there's big debates what carbon tax should be like in many a way. Maybe we try again. So the question is, can I have any example of a positive result of geoengineering? And the answer is a simple no, because this is entirely conceptual, because it's a no-no conversation piece. It is something that we do not want to go there, a lot of people say, because we are already screwing around so much with the planet. Let's not start to screw around with the sun and the atmosphere. But there are experiments that have been done, of course, by seeding upper cloud regions to increase the reflection of the clouds that you indeed have less uh, coming down. So well, we haven't done any geoengineering, but nature has done geoengineering for us, of course. So when there's a large volcanic eruption, the volcanoes kick out ash. The ash is so high, it goes beyond the troposphere into the, into the stratosphere. That distributes around, and that has a measurable reduction in temperature at the surface. So we know that that system itself will have an effect. The nice thing about volcanic ash is it falls out eventually, and the effect is gone. And so it, it's not a permanent, permanent change as you go about. But we have not done large-scale geoengineering. But there are stories that the Chinese uh, are, have done more... At, greater experiments because they worry about crops, of course, with a lot more people in there. But it's so far not been a discussion topic because the thought that we would further engineer the atmosphere we already have done is too terrifying. I think that's a mistake because doing nothing is probably more terrifying. So the question is, can I have any example of a positive result of geoengineering? And the answer is a simple no, because this is entirely conceptual because it's a no-no conversation piece. It is something that we do not want to go there, a lot of people say, because we are already screwing around so much with the planet. Let's not start to screw around with the sun and the atmosphere. But there are experiments that have been done, of course, by seeding upper cloud regions to increase the reflection of the clouds that you indeed have less uh, coming down. So well, we haven't done any geoengineering, but nature has done geoengineering for us, of course. So when there's a large volcanic eruption, the volcanoes kick out ash. The ash is so high, it goes beyond the troposphere into the, into the stratosphere. That distributes around, and it has a measurable reduction in temperature at the surface. So we know that that system itself will have an effect. The nice thing about volcanic ash is it falls out eventually, and the effect is gone. And so it, it's not a permanent, permanent change as you go about. But we have not done large-scale geoengineering. But there are stories that the Chinese uh, are, have done more... Uh, 
greater experiments because they worry about crops, of course, with a lot more people in there. But it's so far not been a discussion topic because the thought that we would further engineer the atmosphere we already have done is too terrifying. I think that's a mistake because doing nothing is probably more terrifying. So, so to, to basically repeating what I said, but if you make the sentences too long, then you'll lose the impact, right? So, so it eventually becomes an abstract or a paper. Um, but, but the point I want to drive home is that there are solutions. We simply haven't embraced them yet, but we also have to understand that these solutions are shifts in how we view the world around us, what we expect from that world around us. Um, I think a lot of people in this room, of course, this is a sort of an Arbor audience, and so there's probably more Priuses in this room than there are in the rest of the state, and uh, there are probably people with solar panels uh, on their roofs, uh, but nobody else in the state does it. So preaching to the choir, but it is the only way to move it forward. As people start to do this, that's the only way to convince others to move forward. And I, I don't worry about our future as we start to move. We're not s- stupid. So, so uh, he was asking whether... This idea of the power of one is linked to a tipping point. Let's first explain the tipping point. Tipping points is a great way that journalists like to talk about the world around us. There's a point, up till then it's all fine, but man, once you go beyond that, that cliff is right there. I have never understood that. There is no evidence that 2 degrees is any more of a tipping point than 1.8 or 2.2 degrees Celsius, because the glaciers are melting anyhow. And so this idea of tipping points, is it's not like, it's, as long as you keep below this, we're all perfectly fine. No, there's going to be great stress on the planet, even if we stop producing any greenhouse gases, for example, for a lot of parts of the world. And so, so the, the tipping point itself is really not part of the equation. How the power of one even plays into that, I don't know where you want to go with that, but the thought of that wasn't. Ah, if you're, that, if you're that last person, that's just the tipping point, right? The one that steps over that line. So, so I think that this idea of tipping points held us back also to take action because we're still below the so-called dangerous thresholds of two degrees. Meanwhile, uh, there are places in the world where it's going to be it's hotter than ever was before. What more do you need? And so I never use that term tipping point, actually, for that particular purpose. Now, there are arguments what it really means. And so people have done some... Um, 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 calculations, but was it uh, Malcolm Dell, whatever his name was, he wrote this book and it's, it's popular and people picked it up and so. Yeah, so the question is this is all one story about the near future, let's say it's a story about our kids, right, what our kids will expect what if we go farther forward, well two things of course, nobody thought what the world would look like in 1900 the way it looks like today, right, I mean that's the first thing is it's hard to project 100 years forward assuming it's simply rolling the clock as if nothing else changes I mean, um Electrification of the system is something brand new. We never expected that. And so rolling the clock forward has been done. And people point out, of course, like we're not we're consuming things, but we're not it's not evaporating. There's still thermodynamics, you know. If you use all the iron in the world, it's still there. We just basically have to get it out of where it has been used for for building. So you can recycle it. And recycling is one of the things that comes into this game as understanding that the decisions we can make is demands more aggressive recycling. But better yet, you should pay for that recycling. You should be forced to actually realize that there's a cost to recycling. And instead of saying, well, put it at a curbside, you should contribute to that. All of you have your fancy smartphones. It's the worst thing there is. 60-plus elements that are relatively rare on the planet are on every cell phone. And three years later, two years later, or you get really excited because there's a new Apple, you chuck it out, you get the other one. You can chuck it out, but what if they told you you have to pay $200 to get the, the elements out of that cell phone before you can chuck it out? You probably hold on to it a little longer. That would not be good for the companies that make cell phones. They like to sell them. But this is the part of the game. We can recycle. We can reuse many of the things that we have. But what 100 years from now would look like, man, if I knew that, then, well, I would still be here, but I don't know how it would be like. But remember, we are consuming things, but we're not destroying it. We're not making iron into something else, or we're not... Uh, basically, lithium is the other one, right? Everybody... Not, not everybody is on lithium, but everybody uses lithium in your, in your phones. Um, man, that's going to be consumed like by an enormous amount. We have to start recycling that in some ways because you cannot have an electrified society if you just try to get new lithium. It's sort of the new uh, scarce resource, although there's a lot of lithium around. But 100 years farther, I don't know what to say. Uh, I never, nobody ever thought it would look like it today in, 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 in 1915. I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah, I... I let me just clarify one thing. What I don't like about the tipping points is it gives us an excuse to wait. 
we, we're not there yet, so it's not that so urgent. That is really what bothers me, this whole debate. And that's actually what in the, in the debate about the Paris Accord was like. We put it at two degrees, we have a bit more time. It allows us to delay when we should take action. It's a, typically, again, let's do this tomorrow, let's do this tomorrow. That is my primary thing. I understand where you come from. You can calculate tipping points, how much people consume in the ocean, how much life is there. If you do too much, it's too far. It will not, re, it will not, not recuperate. I understand where you come from. But the problem is we use tipping points as an excuse not to do anything. We just say, well, we're not there yet, so we can still keep on going. And when we're there yet, we'll, we'll figure it out. Well, that's not the, that, that is wrong. This is this challenge that I said we are not good at, at, at acting when things are slow. We're only good when we have hit the tipping point. Then we say, boy, we should never have fished this much. Yeah, that's great to tell that at that time. That, that was my primary thing why I don't like tipping points. It's, for us humans, it's a way to postpone even more action when we should, can take action right now. And yes, your point about dystopia... No, it doesn't have to be there. If you take action, it actually reduces all the things that you think will otherwise lead to dystopia. That's really the way to go. That's what the power of one tries to do. Amy says, one yeah. more. Uh, let's have one last question, and then we'll go have punch and cookies. And thank okay. you. You, you can point out who the last question should be. Yeah, so the, the, the question is about what about methane? So first of all, I did not want to give a climate change talk. I didn't want to give all the ingredients that are part of the greenhouse gases. There's no doubt that methane, 20 or so times more potent than CO2, uh, would be a major issue in this game. It simply amplifies it more. And yes, the permafrost, we're not sure, by the way, how this will release methane and how much methane will be released, but yes, that's there. But I did not try to show you all the little ingredients that are there. There are other cycles that contribute to, to this as well. And so, yes, I emitted methane for the simple reason. I thought CO2 is like the canary in the coal mine. It's, everybody knows about CO2, and methane is just the one-up. No doubt it will be a growing issue. In fact, it's an issue as we get gas, like the, the gas production we have, we find out there are much greater methane leaks than we thought we did. Isn't that amazing? We try to get the gas out of the earth and it leaks out of the earth? Yes, it, it does work that way. Methane is not great. Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. I would, I'll invite Ben to come downstairs and we can ask him more questions there over punch and cookies. Thank you everyone for coming. <laughs>